No, I was actually a fiddle player. I was a violinist. I like fiddler I a lot better. There, I'm looking forward to calling yeah. you a fiddler from now on. <laughs> a fiddler, fiddle little little. Welcome to the Two Authors Chat Show, an entertaining podcast with two best-selling authors connecting readers with an eclectic array of distinguished guests through lively conversation and interviews. Hosted by mystery, suspense, and thriller writers, Douglas Pratt and Nicholas Harvey. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode. We have a very exciting interview coming up. But first of all, Douglas Pratt, what have you been doing? I have, well, kind of relaxing now because Gulf Dreams is off with my editor. Uh, she's giving that a go over. So um, I'll be waiting for that to come back so I can finish it up. It'll be out in two weeks from today. So I pretty much actually the day this podcast goes live, it's going to be out. So that's been exciting. I've just started my brand new series, my Corsair series, uh, which is a spinoff. Um, if you read uh, Gator Alley, it's kind of the spinoff that kind of served as the pilot episode, I guess. Yeah. He's a cool character. That's going to be yeah, fun. He's cool. Yeah. That's, I just finished outlining it. And I, shoot, you won't believe it, I outlined the whole damn thing. 55 chapters. What you went from a pantser to a plotter in I one foul swoop. The whole thing, yeah, it was it was I, which was great yesterday. I like banged out five thousand words in one sitting. I was like, wow, it's missing in the keys. Did it to you, huh? Missing in the keys did it. We, I I dragged you over the fence to the other side. Yes, well, it's it's it was kind of nice actually. I enjoyed plotting it. I was able to do that, and then um, just sit down. Once I did, I got the storyline. I can get to the details and fill them in, which was kind of nice. I kind of thought about dictating it, but I just haven't jumped on that yet. So I tried it for like a few minutes, honestly. I haven't really given it a good go. But the way I tested dictating when we were driving in the bus, um, which is our house in the States when we're back there, I'm driving down the road and I was dictating and Cheryl was writing it down. She's a great typist. She can type really fast, which I can't. But it mess. I could not hold it. Maybe it was because I was driving at the time. <laughs> but there again, Thacker, that's how he drives. He drives around well, and dictates. Well, I, was, yeah. I was just listening to Thacker. He did a web webinar on it, so I watched it the other day, and, and he was talking about it. And he's got he's using, like, he, I guess he dictates it, and he throws it into the AI chat GPT to autocorrect it and add all the punctuation, and seemed to be working pretty well for him. So I figured there'd be a lot of, uh, I mean, I'd be right along and have to stop and, research to make sure I'm talking about the right thing sometimes, even though I've got the outline I want to make sure I'm not writing about a plant that doesn't exist in Mexico. So just <laughs> <laughs> that, but that's what, yeah, that's been me. The only other big thing I've got coming up is, uh, this day is the 11th, I guess, with, uh, my granddaughter just turned two. So the terrible twos. Yeah. She's pretty awesome though. Yeah. They don't go through terrible anything when you're a granddad, right? That's right. You don't give a crap. We're like, whatever you want to do. That's oh, fine. You can just do it. So Yeah, yeah. And then you hand them back. You hand them right back. I can wound <laughs> them up and then hand them back. So, <laughs> but How about you, sir? What have you been up to? Uh, somewhat similar. So the Ore Verdi is uh, with the editor. I have a little bit longer than you. It comes out on uh, July 25th. But I uh, run it through my editor. I'll have it for about 10 days. Then it'll go through my beta readers for about another 10 days finish up and get it ready to release. Excited about that. Probably with uh, the chat with our guest, Nick Sullivan, we'll touch on Faceless, which I worked on with him and uh, brilliant uh, author, AJ Stewart. I love AJ's stuff. And Chris Niles, who's been a member of the Tropical Authors Group for quite a while. So the four of us wrote the next uh, TA uh, 
collaboration novel. It's called Faceless, and that comes out on July the 11th. Should be the day this, uh, this airs and the day Golf Dreams comes out. We're sort of still in the editing phase. It's been through our main editor. It's now with some beta readers. We've got some beta reader feedback, but we had to get it in good shape to get it to Kim Breton, my uh, um, audiobook narrator, because she's going to read it for us, which is super exciting because uh, it's got my characters in it, which she does normally. Emily, who is an English dive master and one of Nick Sullivan's, who we're going to talk to, his character. And so she's going to knock that out of the park. And then AJ Stewart has uh, this character, Sam, Samantha, who is also a diver and is from England, although she lives in Florida. So uh, Kim's going to knock it out of the park with this. Uh, wow, yeah, she'll be so, great. Uh, and if you don't know Kim, she's been on the show with us and she does the sound bit at the very, introduces us. That's that sexy voice. <laughs> she's the only professional <laughs> part about the show. <laughs> and um, my mom's visiting right now. So when this airs, she will have uh, gone home again, but she's here for about uh, eight or 10 days. So i got to hang out with my mom I love for a your bit. Mom. My mom loves you. She talks about, she just read your Max Sawyer series. She goes, oh, he, oh, he kills a lot of people in that one. <laughs> I kill more in Chase, but yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of blood and stuff in here, but I love them. I love Doug's stuff. Oh, she's awesome. I love your mom. So oh, she, she likes your stuff more than mine. She's like, oh, yeah, you've got another one out. I'll get around to reading that. <laughs> Doug's got a new one. <laughs> no, she reads all mine. I'm lucky. That's awesome. Yeah, moms are good like that. They'll read all your stuff. So, Do we have an audience question? I think we do. Hold on. Let's see. Are, are, do we have an audience question here? And it is, who's this one from? It is coming from John Cronshaw out of England. And he says, is there any advice you would give to someone with an idea that they've been percolating on for years, but have only written about a thousand words? Yeah, uh, right about another 69,000. So <laughs> we uh, <laughs> obviously this is a question yeah. that comes up a lot. And because, uh, you know, a lot of people have ideas for books and ideas for stories and everything else. So, and it's tricky. It's very daunting going into, you know, if we think back to the first time we wrote a novel, I think it, it, it is very daunting to think, my God, that's a lot. You know, the first thing I did was I kind of Googled how long's a book? You know, my bookshelves were full of them, but I didn't know how many pages exactly, you know, you can go and look in them, but you know, what's that in terms of word size, spacing, what's the rules, how long it's supposed to be, you know, and when you learn, it's got to be uh, a novel is over 50,000 words and it's a pretty cheap ass novel if it's only 50,000 words. So 60 starts getting you in the window, right? Of that's a, a proper novel and, um, and 70 to me is kind of the sweet spot. So that's a lot of bloody words, 70,000 <laughs> words is, and it's daunting. So, uh, as we were just talking about, you know, pantsing versus plotting, plotting can be a great way of, uh, of seeing how you're going to lay this story out and just start filling out chapters. You can fill it out by act, uh, through, you know, normal three act structure. Um, but you can start filling in. I, I'd like, I do 1800 to 2000 words a chapter. Some will come out way over that. Some will come under that, but that's a great, that's my rhythm for chapters. And so, uh, if I break, you know, take 70,000 words, break it down to 2000, uh, 2000 words, I've got 35 chapters. Now I start putting, you know, if you've got a thousand words down for your story, I'm sure that's a, an outline of that story. So spread those thousand words over your 35 chapters. 
to see where the story goes and then basically take it one bite at a time. It's the same way as climbing a mountain. You've got to, you know, there's no... You, uh, bite, you bite the mountain? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's as how you eat an elephant. <laughs> yeah, one bite at a time. Although <laughs> I, I don't recommend you eat elephants. No, it's one footstep. You know, it's like climbing a mountain, one footstep at a time. I missed the footstep bit out of it, but it's, but you've got to take one step at a time. There are no shortcuts. Yeah, the, the, I think the key to that is definitely, I mean, what's, what's the saying? Button chair, hand on keyboard. It's just going to be to write. Uh, and honestly, your first book is probably going to suck. <laughs> That's, you know, <laughs> my first book sucks. So if, uh, <laughs> you know, let's just say, let's be aware that that's, you know, it takes a lot of practice. I mean, at this point, um, I'm got my 10th Chase Gordon book. So that puts me a total to think about 18. How many, how many books do you have out now? Uh, let's see. I've got 14. This will be the 14th one in AJ series. I've got four in the other sets, 18. Then I've got all the collaborations. Um, so I've got about five, six of them. So that's, you know, we're both pushing around 20 books and I don't think that we're anywhere near as good as we could be. So it's going to be keep getting better as you go along. So just be aware of that your first book is probably not going to be, you're not going to be pulling a Harper Lee and writing to kill a mockingbird. Yeah, and I think it takes the first one takes a lot longer, right? I mean, you've got to figure out what what's your how's how does it work? What's your working structure to make it happen? Do you sit down and work? You know, we we've figured it out, and now, and obviously, it's our business, so it's not a case of oh, I feel like writing today. Oh, I don't feel like writing today. We don't have that option. We have deadlines, and so we have to commit to um, putting a certain amount on paper at least every week. I, I give myself a, I have a daily target, but I have a weekly target and that gives me a little bit of movement during the week. But to start with, it's going to take a while to do it. When you get to the end of it, it's not going to be right. You're going to probably want some help in going through and maybe restructuring a little bit, moving some stuff around within the chapters, maybe changing some of the uh, timing of stuff, maybe the whole speech thing. You know, a dialogue is a difficult thing, right? You learn over time to write dialogue that's natural to the way people speak and don't just uh, info dump in dialogue or be very stiff in the dialogue and stuff like that. So it's not uncommon in the first novel to get to the end of it and go back and go, I've got to rewrite every piece of dialogue in this whole book and uh yeah, i've rewritten my first book probably seven times and it's still it's, i think this is where you where you're at when you get to that point it's it's gonna take practice like anything else you know nobody just walked out on the basketball court started playing basketball and got it right away there's a handful of people who were just innately born that way but the rest of us gotta practice and that's all it is so writing every day and, and you know i'll tell you what encourages me when I get down on how many words I write is I always remember that Terry Pratchett, who was extremely prolific and great British writer too, right? I mean, 500 words a day. That's all he wrote every day. So 500 words is only three paragraphs, four paragraphs, especially the way Terry Pratchett wrote, but you know, it's not that much and you can get some stuff done with it. Yeah, absolutely. And good luck. Cool. Well, let's uh, move on. So this week's show, uh, I've titled, uh, we've titled it Bright Green Sunglasses. Um, the reason it's titled Bright Green Sunglasses is our guest, Nick Sullivan, has a fantastic character. She's an English dive master by the name of Emily, and she is freaking hilarious. She writes her uh, superbly, and she likes bright green things. So she has bright green dive masks, fins, and she's always wearing bright green sunglasses. So uh, um, because we've decided 
the hell with it. We'll just call the shows whatever they comes to mind. <laughs> this one's bright green. We, we're not practicing SEO methods at all, so you can't find us by keywords. You just have to look for us because you want us. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, indeed. All right, so let's uh, let's chat with Nick Sullivan. He's a, he's an actor, narrator, and a fabulous author, and he's the man behind the Tropical Authors Group. Um, so let's chat with Nick Sullivan. Nick Sullivan, welcome to the Two Authors Chat Show. Thank you very much for having me. Great to have you. Howdy, howdy. So we got two Nicks in this podcast, and we got two Tennesseans in this podcast, but different combinations of each to make that happen. That's exactly right. Yes, we do. So we've got uh, yeah, you, you and uh, Mr. Harvey are Nicks, and you and I are both Tennesseans. And that's, that's the sort of pithy thing you want me to say for the next uh, uh, chunk of time here, if, as long as I keep firing away with... Nick and Tennessee jokes. Well, most of our audience are now counting on both hands to figure out the math behind it. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm okay. not calling we our audience dumb. We but... our audience, okay? It's, it's kind of, uh, <laughs> I think that's the number one rule of podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, in the intro, I mentioned a few things that you've done in your background, which is extremely uh, diverse, Nick. And obviously, we've uh, all known each other for quite a while from the author side of things. But how on earth did you get started and what did you get started in? Was it like a school drama stuff or what? I actually, I mean, in high school, I was, I was thinking back this morning. I was like, how did I start? I remember in high school, they were doing Fiddler on the Roof when I showed up for my freshman year and I played the fiddle. And somebody came and said, you should be the fiddle. Oh, I thought you meant you played the fiddle <laughs> in the play. Like someone yeah. held you up to their chin no. and smacked you with a bow. No, I was actually a fiddle player. I was a violinist. I like Fiddler I a lot better. There, I'm looking forward to calling yeah. you a Fiddler from now on. <laughs> a Fiddler? Fiddle, little, little, little. Uh, yeah. No, I was concert master, actually. My gosh. Um, but uh, I sat up there. I, I do remember falling off the roof one night. That was fun. <laughs> um, but, you know, I had a non-speaking role. I was interested in writing, though, in high school. And I actually went to college uh, to the University of the South in Tennessee. And they were expecting a big endowment from... Tennessee Williams estate to create a creative writing department, but one of the relatives just wouldn't die. So <laughs> by the time I left, there was no creative writing program. And um, because I had sort of gone bald my senior year of high school, I was extremely in demand for uh, for uh, older characters <laughs> in, in a university. So I was in every show and all of a sudden I wound up being an actor, which was not my original expectation. Boy, you got a lucky break there, huh? <laughs> I, I suppose so. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I went on to New York to, to do the, the schmacting thing. And I was lucky enough to get into some Broadway shows and I did a lot of film and television. Uh, it's funny though, the film and television, I, because I was a theater actor, I just wasn't booking anything. And I'm mentioning this for Britnick here because it was Dame Judi Dench. I was watching some little thing of hers doing a master class, and she was giving her advice on film and television acting. She goes, it's very simple. Don't do anything. <laughs> I'm like, oh. <laughs> and she went on to expound that she didn't really mean that. But the idea was smaller, 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 smaller. And I just stopped acting uh, on the film and television and that, that, that took off after that. So how old were you when you moved? And you moved to New York? Yeah, I, I, so I went, I actually, from undergrad, I went to grad school at Rutgers, which was near New York, because 
A, I still had a baby face, but I wasn't going to be cast for <laughs> my age. So I thought I could, I could leave myself in the, in the, in the, in the tank for a few more years here, age a bit. But they also had a good reputation for matching you up with agents. And, and I was fortunate enough to get signed. You know, when you do university uh, and you're going to finish your degree, you, you take uh, your, your finals, right? Or, or you have to do a dissertation or something like that. With acting, you had basically a, a showcase, uh, a presentation. So we had a showcase uh, in front of all these agents. And, oh, and I totally forgot I did this. I asked to have one of my scenes in the beginning and one of my scenes in the end. And they're like, why? I'm like, please just let me do it. And they did. So the first one, I came in with a full beard, wearing a trucker cap. And it, uh, the, I think the piece was Luann Hampton Oberlander. And I, I was talking like this and all that. Then I went backstage, shaved everything, <laughs> shaved. <laughs> clean face, made myself all pretty, put on a beautiful suit, and uh, I played a, uh, a, a therapist with this a German accent. <laughs> it, was a, it was a hilarious scene. The, uh, it was, the, the idea is the person who's been getting the therapy feels they're, they've made enough progress that they're going to leave. And so the, the, it's written like the therapist is a clingy member of a couple who doesn't want <laughs> to let go? <laughs> so, oh yeah, no, it was it was the best. I was threatening suicide by shoving my handkerchief in my mouth and threatening to light it like a molotov. Oh my god! Oh man! Um, wow. Okay. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> that that wasn't in the script, but it was it got people's attention. So then I went on to do all the acting and things. The audiobooks was kind of an accident. I feel like I'm just doing a monologue here. So why don't you guys ask me some questions? That's okay. Leading into your, uh, you talk about the, the audio books and stuff. What, what about like you were talking earlier about your family? Did you have family that was in the acting or anything or you just kind of. No, not, not at all. My, my dad was a avid reader. When I say entire walls of our house were books, I'm not kidding. He had uh, a, bookcases built. So some rooms were just nothing but books. And he would eat, read everything from Proust to uh, just whatever sci-fi book he pulled off the uh, the wall at McKay's used books. Oh, I love McKay's, um, by the way. <laughs> so, oh, McKay's is the yeah. best. Uh, so he would do all, and oh, he was a chess player. Uh, he played Bobby Fischer and he actually played him to a draw. Really? Wow. Uh, which cool. everyone goes, wow, it's amazing. And then I have to point out, except it was one of those things where Bobby Fischer was playing 12 of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so my dad did manage a draw, but it was in those conditions. So he was always like, he's like, that guy, he would have killed me. <laughs> but yeah, he was a chess champion. But he did volunteer work for. Recording for the Blind, which was later called Recording for the Blind and Dyslexic. And he would go in once a week and record, because he was a mathematician, he primarily did math textbooks because he knew how to properly say everything, which is a skill set I've learned I don't have. So I, I knew that he did that. And then I also remember my parents both enjoyed it was on NPR. It was a show called uh, The Radio Reader, which I actually mentioned in Deep Hex. The Radio Reader with Dick Estelle. 
And uh, Dick Estelle would come on and a half hour every show, he would read a book. And this was before audiobooks, so there wasn't really anyone being worried about copyright. Oh, so this is uh, in Deep Hex. You use the guy in the uh, in the old station, and he reads the books every week, exactly. right? Exactly. Oh, so that's and where that, it came from. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. In the afterward, I'd talk about why I, I did that. Yeah. And the first book I ever listened to on that radio show was Clive Custler's Vixen 03. Really? Yeah. So that was an early Clive Custler yeah, yeah, very. But the, then the audiobooks, you know, I listened to them driving to and from Tennessee to New York. That's a 12-hour drive. And I would get the uncut ones and listen to them all the way. And then while I was doing the acting, uh, I had an audition in some weird little place. I remember. Uh, it was an old building. And there was a cork board. And on it was a call for actors to record for charity for free for the Jewish Braille Institute. And I took that and I stuck it in my wallet. Then the following week, a buddy of mine was going to be in a New York University student movie, and he couldn't do it. So he called me and goes, it's, it's a father, it's older, can you take over? I'm really leaving them in the lurch. So I got thrown into this job. I'm sitting there having my lunch on the lunch break of this movie, and the gal playing my wife mentions that she records books for talking books, but they had just let her go. And I was like, oh, man, that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> and this was pre-cell phone. So I quickly set my lunch aside, uh, went out for a cigarette. Uh, yes, I smoked back then. I went to a payphone and I took out two quarters. And the first one, I found the Jewish Braille Institute thing because the talking books was for the Library of Congress, but you were paid. It was a, a, un a union job. So I called the Jewish Braille Institute offered my services, and I did a bunch of accents for them. And I, I, I was teaching voice and speech at Rutgers at that time. So I'm like, I teach voice and speech. I do dialects. And they said, oh, can you come in tomorrow? I'm like, sure. Then I called Talking Books, gave them the same spiel and said, and I have experience doing audiobooks <laughs> because they didn't want me until the following week. <laughs> So I kind of, at a place I was doing it for free, I sort of, I was doing a, oh, it was Stephen Kuntz, C-O-O-N-T-Z. And it was sort of a Clancy-esque kind oh, of like that. fighter. Flight of the Intruder, wasn't it? Yeah, it was one of his later ones, I think. But then I went into talking books and read for them. And fortunately, they liked me. And uh, it all sort of went from there. And from that, doing all these audiobooks and reading hundreds of different kinds of writers, I remembered that I sort of wanted to be a writer. And uh, that's how it's sort of come full circle. I got to ask you this because I've had a big career change. You've, you've kind of st stayed in the same general vicinity of entertainment, but in different areas of it, all of which are horrendously hard to make a living at, right? I mean, there's a bazillion people who, who go, oh, I want to be an actor, whether it's stage, screen, TV, whatever it is, right? Same with writing. We all know how hard it is to uh, uh, actually make a living at, at, at writing books, which we're very fortunate now to be able to do with all of us. But you took on three areas that are basically bang your head against the wall to try and make progress in. So you've been brilliantly successful and you're doing really well for yourself, but I'm sure it wasn't always like that. Oh, no. I'll, I'll avoid numbers of money and such. But there was one year I was like, I don't think I could live on this 
back home in Tennessee, there, there were some rough years, definitely rough years. The ramen noodle years. Oh my God, the ramen, or what was, I would get a can of refried beans and tortillas and cheap jarred salsa and make tacos. Like that's what I would eat. But uh, there was a point, you know, I, I worked in law firms doing paralegal work and proofreading and that kind of thing. Um, but there was a point where I realized I didn't need to do the other jobs. Then once the audiobooks came along, even the later lean years weren't completely lean because if I wasn't doing a show, I was able to do audiobooks. And I, I was fortunate enough to get in with enough places that they would feed me a fairly steady supply of, of audiobooks. And the film and TV picked up a bit. And the theater was great. I mean, I was in Newsies. I was in Footloose and some other big shows. The problem with theater, aside from being very difficult, uh, it, but it, you can't really do anything else. Um, and I found, I, I actually got onto the tour of Kinky Boots the national tour, which is a big deal. And I was with it. Oh boy, they hated me because <laughs> about five months in, I'm like, I can't do audiobooks. I can't do film and TV. I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I'm giving you. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like what? You just joined <laughs> us. I'm like, yeah, I'm used to being able to sort of do everything. But uh, what I've now kind of tried to pivot to is the narration and the writing with film and TV thrown in. So and, let me ask you a question here. Yeah, so that's a lot still. I mean, film, TV, writing, you know. Yeah, you're not kinky boots anymore, but how are you balancing all of that? Like, well, you know. I don't know that I am. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's um, healthy. That's healthy. The, that's the way we should be doing it. <laughs> well, I mean, the two of you, I look at I look at what you've done with, with your series is, is the discipline to go, look, I have to have X amount of books a year, and if I do it, this will happen. And you guys do it, whereas and I'm this like, uh, this doesn't I can't quite even start writing because <laughs> I'm recording. No, I can't. One book a year is about all I've been able to write because it just piles up. But I'd still love narrating good books. It's <laughs> not always fun. That's a big part of it, right? Is having choices uh, it, with all these things. That's 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 what uh, often success kind of brings you, or uh, you can define success as is when you can actually choose which ones you do. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I I've been turning down audio of late because I realized every audiobook I take on top of the series that I'm already doing means putting off the next book of my own. So I am trying to tamp down on that a little. Uh, but actors, if you're talking about those lean years, it's very hard to say no to jobs. We're so traumatized by the feast or famine years that I, I still take things that I probably shouldn't have, but <laughs> it's money in the hand and the books are, you know, you get paid eventually. So I've got, I got another question for you real fast before I'm going to interrupt Nick. Real quick. But, uh, so from the audiobook standpoint, and when I'm, you know, having to listen to my own audiobooks, which is personally my least favorite thing to do with all the writing, but what are the words that just constantly trip you up as you're reading along and you go, well, I just mispronounced that one all together. Nick tells me I, I tend to see the shit out of some words sometimes. So how do you <laughs> tend to see the shit out of some words? 
That's it. Well, it took me a while to not say insurance. <laughs> and, uh, Is and that not how we say it? <laughs> <laughs> do, do you say ambulance? Oh. oh, God, go up to Bristol, Tennessee, and catch the race there. And, uh, oh, yeah, is the ambulance here? The, uh, that's a North, North Carolina all up through there. Ambulance. I've never heard that. I'm in, I'm in East Tennessee uh, by Knoxville. We'd say ambulance. But my dad, you know, he, he goes back to the first settlers in Tennessee. That being said, he was a guy that read Proust and <laughs> was a math guy. And so he didn't have much of an accent. And my mother uh, is from actually Ukrainian uh, method, uh, uh, Mennonite from Kansas. So she had a, just a very clean Midwest sound without much. So I, neither of my parents had a strong accent. If I had a twang, it was just from growing up with, with the others. But I remember being teased for insurance when I got <laughs> to Rutgers. Um, and if I do an audiobook and it's a Southerner talking... I'm like, oh, I have to say insurance because that's what he'd say. But then people are going to think I'm saying it. But no, it's that guy <laughs> saying it. <laughs> so I got to ask you this one because this uh, always I always wonder when I'm uh, looking at um, people who work in movies and stuff. Have you ever walked into a, a set and just been completely starstruck? Because that's got to, you know, I mean, in the industry, that's a big no-no, right? You can't, you've got to act like it's all blasé and everything else. But you must have met some people that you're like, wow, I'm meeting so-and-so right now. <sighs> I mean, I guess I, I remember um, I was doing a show at the Roundabout, and I came in, and uh, F. Murray Abraham was sitting there with one of the guys in my cast, and I was like, "Oh my God, it's Salieri!" <laughs> and I remember that this was my first job out of Rutgers, so I remember being aware that I should be starstruck, but I was just sitting there in the green room, you know, over in, in, in a chair, uh, green room. For those who don't know theater, is just the place you hang out in while the show's going on. And uh, F. Murray Abraham was a very normal person having a normal conversation. And I sort of decided I would jump into the conversation at some point and let my contribution have nothing to do with who he was. And we had just a great conversation. So every since then, uh, every since then, oof, uh, ever since then, <laughs> um, that's not even a Tennessee thing. That's me being tired. I, I don't, I, I, I see star folks all the time in New York and I've worked with plenty and I kind of pride myself in just, they don't want that if, if you can avoid it. I mean, some of them probably do, but they're ones I probably don't want to be around if they really love being worshipped. I think a lot of it, too, has to do with the environment you're in. You know, I come from a racing background, so, you know, I've been around a lot of the um, big IndyCar and NASCAR guys. I've worked with a lot of them, and then you've been around and seen a lot of the others. So you see them all the time, and you're interacting, and you know people that they know, and it, you you know, it it just becomes the norm. You don't really think about it. They're just another part of the part of the process. But then I've been in weird situations like when I was living in Southern California, it's kind of same as New York. There's places you'd go, you'd run across people and you'd recognize them. What's really strange is when you see a famous person and you recognize them and there's a familiarity because you think you know them and you're sort of like, oh, hi. Oh, I don't actually know you. <laughs> <laughs> and they're looking at you like, get the hell away from me. <laughs> so, yeah, we, we, I, used to, I used to work in hospitality here in in Tennessee, it was in Memphis, was the Peabody Hotel. 
It's a nice oh, with the ducks. Yeah. You know, so we always had famous people. And I think one of my, and I've met some cool people. And, it, you know, you couldn't really show you're sitting behind the bar or something like that. You can't really, you know, be, oh, look, it's, you know, Billy Joel or whoever. But we <laughs> think, you know, one of my favorite ones, we had a guy who came in and everybody was, everybody was convinced he was Kelsey Grammer. And he wasn't. I mean, I was like, that's not Kelsey Grammer. <laughs> <laughs> but the guy was like playing. I mean, I was, I was pretty sure after a minute, I was like, first of all, he's acting like he's enjoying being Kelsey Grammer. And I don't believe that is the case, but he was like getting the, you know, everybody's like, Oh, it's Kelsey Grammer. We got to take him to give him some food. I was like, I don't think that's him. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've had people convinced I was um, Hugh Laurie from house. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> they, <laughs> <laughs> they, would, they were absolutely, they would not believe me. And uh, the more I said, the more they're like, yeah, yeah, him. <laughs> Here's my driver's. Well, I, the weird thing that with the Kelsey Grammer, when I came out of college, I had long hair, which you remember he did. And I had a, 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 a tailored beard. And I was doing a show on Broadway, the same one that F. Murray walked into. And one of the characters who played an old British general uh, was Keen Curtis. And if you ever watched uh, Cheers, he was the proprietor of the upstairs place that was always complaining, of, Sam, what are you doing down here? So I came in, uh, I was understudying him, I believe, and some others. And I walked in, I saw him across the room, his eyes got big and he stood up and then he looked confused. <laughs> and he came over later and goes, I thought you were Kelsey. <laughs> and then I realized he's a bit taller than you are. <laughs> That's awesome. And I had the Kelsey thing happen on my street when I was oh, living wow, in Weehawken. Yeah, uh, yeah it, it, it happened for a while. And then once I chopped the long hair off, it stopped completely. But he's he's got quite a bit of height he on does. He's, he's a tall guy. So. Well, let's talk about your books a little bit then. So let's see. You've got uh, the Deep series. And um, I think also I love that you write zombie books. Well, I've written a zombie book. Uh, I am working on, yeah, the next one I've got about 30,000 words in. And I think I'm going to try to finish it. But yeah, the, the, the writing, I had a screenplay of Zombie Bigfoot. And the idea had come from a Sky Mall magazine. Got to <laughs> mention that. In 2011, I was flying. I think we were coming back from Cozumel from diving. And there was a Sky Mall. And there was a section in the Sky Mall that was garden crap. And on one side was this Bigfoot statue. Toscano, I think, makes them. It's yep. Everyone's got yeah. one. It, it, yeah. yeah. And it, the Bigfoot statue was on the left, and on the right side of the divide on, in that magazine was a flagstone with the upper torso and arms of a zombie like it was pulling itself out of the ground. So now the order of reading would be Bigfoot zombie, but fortunately, I thought the other way. <laughs> uh, but I looked at that, and I was like, how has nobody done this? And as soon as I got home, I bought the rights to zombiebigfoot.com. I wrote up the treatment. I sent it into Library of Congress. <laughs> you know, I got it all set. And then, you know, I got in I, 2000. Yeah, I think I got Newsies. And so that went out the window. But then after a while, I started noticing some of the people I was narrating for who were self-published were doing better than the ones who were with traditional publishing. 
Uh, and I thought, why is that? <laughs> and uh, after narrating for Wayne Stennett, he did a nonfiction book, uh, Blue Collar to No Collar, about how he went from being a trucker to writing. I thought, well, I basically have the entire story of Zombie Bigfoot already plotted out. So I novelized it and put it out there, and I got number one in horror comedy. And I was thinking, yay! And I was working on the sequel to it when it, the idea for Deep Shadow just pumped into my mind. I mean, a while ago, I had thought about doing a story where like Greenpeace gets a hold of uh, a, a, an old Soviet kilo submarine and goes after a whaling fleet or something like that. And I was sort of thinking about that and uh, I had read something about a narco sub and then the idea of, oh, what if a narco sub gets taken over by people even worse than the cartel? And that's where that happened. So I dropped the zombie thing and wrote that and it was so successful. I thought, well, <laughs> guess I'm doing this now. And that's why I ended up doing the Deep series. And I'm six books in on that, uh, as well as uh, a marvelous little co-op with uh, Brit Nick here and some other co-ops with Tropical Authors. But I am trying to get back to the Zombie Bigfoot sequel because once I have a two-story arc, I want to try to get it to the Duffer Brothers who did Stranger Things and they have another horror one coming out. A friend of mine right now is doing Sweeney Todd and... One of the kids from Stranger Things is in that. Uh, I've actually met him. I have a photo of him holding Zombie Bigfoot. <laughs> so I'd like to do that, but it's difficult because, as I said before, I have too many balls in the air. What gravitated you towards, I mean, you, you said with the idea with the magazine and you, you just came up with the idea of the writing. And and you said originally you kind of were, were going to do it as a, as a screenplay. So... With your background, it seems more natural that you would gravitate towards writing screenplays over novels. Was that a conscious choice to not do that? Well, by the time I got to realize that I could novelize it myself and make it happen myself, I had already read enough audiobooks. I, I've done 600 as of now, roughly. Uh, I've been doing them since... Since the days of reel to reel, we used to do it. If you made a mistake, you had to punch it in on reel to reel, like chuk chuk. So I've been doing it a while, and yes, I'm in film and TV, and yes, it makes sense that I would do it as a screenplay, which I started originally. But I actually had a better working knowledge, I think, of plot structure and novelizations than I did screenplays, because that's a whole nother. I I think there are probably more frustrated screenplay writers than there are frustrated writers because the frustrated writers can at least turn around and get it made. Whereas with the screenplay, you can't make your own. I mean, you can, but they're hilarious. So that was part of the idea. And now that it's novelized, I probably have a better chance of getting it made than if I just wandered around with an unconnected screenplay. I actually went the other way around. I, I wrote screenplays before I ever wrote a novel. I did not know that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they never went anywhere. But um, but I, I think I wrote three or four full lengths and uh, like three or four shorts. And I did them over quite a few years. Uh, it was a great exercise. But it, as you said, it's a completely different discipline. Was it porn? Uh, <laughs> it, it was porn, wasn't it? <laughs> no, it was not porn. <laughs> Believe it or not, it was not porn. 
Horse burlesque. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> it should have been. Maybe, maybe they would have sold if it had been that. So I had a one short called uh, Crab Pastries, uh, it was called, and it was about a, uh, a band. <laughs> I, I can't even remember what it was really, you know, it, it involved in the story, but I remember it being about a band and the drummer was Scottish and they were at some soiree. But it was, uh, but it was good fun, but it was a good process. And then moving into novels, it always seemed daunting, right? It was, so it was like 120 pages to write a two-hour uh, movie screenplay. That seemed achievable. The novel just seemed like, oh, my God, that's so much. And I think that's the, the hard part with writing a novel. Everyone, everyone always asks, oh, well, how do you do it? And everyone answers the same way who's written one. Write. Sit down and write. That's how you do it. You sit down and you start writing, and then eventually you'll yeah, there'll be a book at the end of it. But that's what you have to do. You have to write, then you have to write some more, and then you have to write some more. And um, yeah, after doing the first novel, it was far less daunting. Although it was a, it felt like a huge achievement just to have written that many words uh, that linked together in some form or, uh, or way. So, so quick yeah, question so- for quick question then for both of you. I've never written. A screenplay, and certainly not porn. It wasn't ever my thing. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, but seriously, serious question. Like, so people have asked me why I've never, you know, done that. Put my books into a screenplay, and I'm like, I don't know. It seems like a lot of work, and I'm not big on that. But what is what would be the process that you did for? What's the difference as far as writing a screenplay versus writing a novel for people? Well, there there are a lot of rules. I, I feel like I have to point something out before we get to doing the screenplay. The hardest thing about the screenplay is shopping it. I actually think writing a novel is harder than writing a screenplay. But you can do something with a novel. You can be your own boss. With a screenplay, you got to go hat in hand and hope you know somebody. And the success rate is terrifyingly low. But if you do the screenplay, you know, you you almost have to have final draft. Um, There are very specific rules about you know, describing the interior and time shifts. Uh, and then movies almost always have a particular act structure. So you kind of have to know where things go. And that, I feel like that's carried over to my books. I tend to write them. I'm, I, I accidentally call chapters scenes all the time. I'm like, Hey, you remember this scene where M is this, you know, and it's a chapter, but I, I visually, feel like the camera is doing things. But, you know, if the camera is doing things in the screenplay, you have to specifically spell it out, you know, what kind of shot is it. You have to know the types of shots. Now, that being said, you may say, I want this to be a close shot, and the director and the cinematographer, they're going to do whatever the heck they want. It, it's just sort of a, a guide. So then backing that up to, to books, like, and this is a question I've been asked, and I don't know if we've talked about this before, Nick, but, I mean, like, when you when we're all writing books, do you visualize the scenes in your head? Like, is that does it play out like a movie in your head when you're doing it and you're writing? I mean, that's for me. It absolutely is. So, yeah. And the screenplay, as Nick Nick touched on, you you can't do long winded descriptions. So yeah, there's really strict rules, and they and they will stop reading it on page one if you start giving them. Uh, they get very offended <laughs> if if you start telling them how to shoot the movie. So. It's a lot of dialogue and movement of the people within the scenes. And then you just open it with, this is the scene, this is the location. You don't, you know, time of day, um, that sort of thing. But it's very brief descriptions. You can't get wordy about it at all. And then you've got to get into what the movements of the, uh, the, of the people are or if a building's falling down or what have you. So when you get into a novel, it's almost like you get unleashed <laughs> 
because you get to do all of that stuff. So all of the, the light glinting off of this and what they're feeling inside as they're walking down this pathway as the, you know, bullet takes their ear all off or something. You get to get into all that uh, description, which is, which is fun too, right? So that also, um, you say you've 600 novels you've, you've narrated so far? Yes. And some textbooks, so from, <laughs> but I don't count those. I mean, is it across all genres. Um, so you would, ha- or yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I did. I I worked for a while at Talking Books for the Library of Congress, which was cool because those are part of a program, and they end up in the Library of Congress. So they might get some big star to do a Dean Koontz book, but I would also do the Dean Koontz book because they couldn't use the commercial one in this. So I got to do Mark Twain and uh, Faulkner and Steinbeck. But uh, yeah, the 600 are across different genres. Uh, Companies tend to, in the same way that actors get typecast for certain things, I have one company that pretty much all they do is send me Southern books. (laughs) And I I get to do my twang all the time. I got another one that thinks all I do is sci-fi. I get sci-fi from them. I had another that did young adult books and kids' books. I think at some point they realized I wasn't right for that because I haven't heard from them in a while. But yeah, I would do like young adult books of some kid that gets into Little League and Mr. Popper's Penguins. I did that book and uh, Tickle the Duck. So you, you, might have a, you might have a good grasp on all genre tropes and stuff at this point, huh? It, it could be. I mean, I've I've done I've done romance. I've done some erotica. Although Nick Sullivan never does erotica. <laughs> you have <laughs> a stage you, name. I is do. It, is it Nick uh, Harvey? Jim Steele. <laughs> Jim, Jim Steele. Steel. <laughs> oh my God, <laughs> Nick Harvey. I should. Do it. Yeah, Jim Steele. There's another narrator, uh, and she. A bunch of narrators have started writing their own books, and she was doing romance, and the main character was a narrator for romance and she had a stage name and she ends up meeting a guy who his stage name that he uses for erotica is like Brock McKnight. <laughs> and that's how she refers to him. But it turns out his real name is Nessel. <laughs> <laughs> and I did not know she did this, uh, you know, cause we, I remember we had talked about it. Yeah, I'm writing now and this and that. So, the next time I get an Ironica, I'm going to totally make it Brock McKnight. Uh, <laughs> totally worth it. I feel like it has to happen. <laughs> well, what, what uh, what's next on your agenda? What are you working on coming up? Well, Britnick and I and AJ and uh, AJ Stewart and Chris Niles are putting up the, the on the finishing touches to Faceless. That'll Looking actually that it'll soon. come out on the 11th, which is the same day this podcast will go live. It's already here. It's also the same day that um, Gulf Dreams goes live too. So we got all of us competing at once. So da, 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 Com- da, da, we're not competing. It's complimentary. It's, no, we're not competing. Everybody should buy exactly. it, both of them. So I, I am working. Uh, I mean, the faceless has sort of stopped me for the moment, but I, I am working on the zombie Bigfoot. I keep calling it Zombie Bigfoot 2 Electric Boogaloo. Uh, it, it, it has another title, but I'm keeping it quiet. So that's, I'm, I do that every day if I can. I'm narrating Axel Blackwell co-wrote with Dawn Lee McKenna, the Stillwater Suspense series, and I'm narrating the second book in that. That is a great series. It's, oh my God, it's got such a good twist. I was like, I've never seen that done. So that I'm enjoying right now. 
I'm working on my swag, my author swag. I don't have any, so I want t-shirts. So some of my day. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit of everything. And making sure my dog is properly fed and walked. That's important. Momo. Momo. Yeah. Okay. Momo Stoffelis. Queen Momo. Nick, it's been brilliant having you on. This has been fantastic. It's uh, been well, thank uh, you much. Uh, th- thank you very much for uh, joining us. Obviously, we've all worked together. And, and uh, what's really weird is I was telling somebody, uh, Tricia, who we both know down here, that uh, I feel like Sullivan and I are like an old married couple. We'll bicker over this and talk about that, and then we work <laughs> together on that. And then you know we talk every couple of days at least, depending on what's going on, and we go back and forth and everything else. And we've never met. No, that's it's true. It's still mind blowing to me that we've never actually met in person. Well, and by the time I thought, you know what, I should go to Key Largo, I left. You like <laughs> two days later, you left. Like, I was there okay, two well. and a half years. I gave you plenty of time. He, he heard you were coming. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, but I had just moved. <laughs> like I went from apartment living to a house, and I'm like, oh my God, I'll never do anything other than fix this house. But that's okay. You're going to come down to Bonaire. So. That's right. So before we go, before we go, we have our, our final question. Yeah, absolutely. Is, if you've listened, you know we have this fabulous wheel, which I get to carry yeah. around all the time. Oh, it yeah. actually exists. So you see awesome. it? It does. I, I swear today I was like, I am going to get us a smaller wheel. I'm tired of carrying this damn thing. But, <laughs> but it does sound cool. So I... <laughs> I was like, there's got to be you, an You have to hold it up where I can see that you're not just picking something. So, well, you, you can't yeah, there read we go. Them, okay. So, yeah, so i to hold it for the... Well, hold on. Oh, it makes a nice sound. Oh, wow. Uh, see, that's all we do is for the sound. So, okay. Good question here. What do you think is the worst cartoon character or your least favorite cartoon character? <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's complex. Okay, I was going to say the boy with the beanie in Speed Racer who was constantly getting uh, captured okay. and talking yeah. in the most annoying voice possible. But no, no, he's been shoved aside by Scrappy-Doo. Okay. Scrappy-Doo. Very good. Scrappy-Doo <laughs> is the worst. <laughs> Scrappy-Doo. Absolutely. Now, there are others, like Snarf of Thundercats. Snarf. But, and, 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 God, and Godzuki. Ah, Godzuki. <laughs> From Godzilla. Yeah, but the, I feel like what was the, all of them, what was the little, it's Scrappy's fault that they exist. What about that little alien that visited the Flintstones? What was his name? Um, Giz- oh, the Great Gazoo. Gazoo. Yeah, the Great Gazoo. Yeah. The Great, that, like, that's a priming, that, that's like Fonzie jumping yeah. the shark before there was exactly. happy days. <laughs> <laughs> so. so, Doug, what's yours? Is that the alien guy and... Well, no, that just occurred to me. I don't know. <laughs> no, out the my least favorite cartoon character. Uh, you remember the Dune buggy that was just Scooby Doo? Was it Dune buggy? Was his name? Like he could go around making little noises like that. Oh, yeah, and it was it, he was an actual he was thing. an actual Dune buggy. But all the show was was just Scooby Doo with a Dune buggy that talked. I don't think I've ever seen that. I've never even heard of it. It rings a bell. Huh. Well, I'm going with Smurfs. I hated Smurfs with a passion when i was a, a lad and uh, it's continued i don't know why it is but i just hate smurfs but so the, the, the rules character you know what, though, what, so which which is the smurf that no he probably I, loves I was say, he looks kills first of all, he kind of looks like gargamel if you think about it i take the beard away you know gargamel running around with i look like a freaking smurf 
No, no, no. Gargamel's the wizard that wanted to kill and eat them, which is why I think you probably like. I would like that. Yeah, yeah, I would like them. But but which which of them was the one you hated? I have no idea. I've never spent enough time watching them because they drove me so mad. I would never watch them. So I I know there's a Papa Smurf, but I probably couldn't uh, under torture. I probably couldn't name another Smurf. That would be pretty sad to be tortured to come up with the name of a Smurf. Yeah. There is a robot, uh, robot chicken that series with the claymation where where one of the Smurfs is a serial killer <laughs> kills all the other Smurfs. So I feel like I should send you the link. Oh, claymation Smurf, yeah. stuff is brilliant. I, I love that Nick. What was that? He was another Nick. Gosh, what was his last name? I forget. But um, did all the uh, claymation stuff. Wallace and Gromit. I like the Wallace and Gromit. Yeah. Oh brilliant. yeah, yeah, yeah. Chicken yeah. run and cheese Gromit. Yeah. More cheese Gromit. All right. That's a good place to end on more cheese. Yeah. (laughs) Nick, thanks for joining us. It's been great. Thank you very much. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening, everyone. And thank you so much, Nick Sullivan, for joining us this week. That was great. Very entertaining. Wasn't that fun? Uh, he's a great guy. Well, you knew it was going to be it. it, But I, I learned loads of stuff I didn't know about him, and I've known him for years now. So cool, folks. Thank you. And subscribe to the show. Please give us a five-star review if you would on whatever podcast channel you uh, get your shows on. Check out the show notes. We've got links uh, in there to our social media, various things about the show, and Nick Sullivan's links to his website, his books, uh, all that good stuff. And uh, support us by uh, buying our books, please. (laughs) And if we're not your genre, no worries. Gift them to somebody else. Amazon lets you gift books. So thank you. Make sure you include that Jim Steele pseudonym that he has when, in your show notes. We, can, we probably yeah. have some erotica listeners out there. So. Jim Steele. Jim Steele. Well, next uh, our next show, a couple of weeks, we'll be uh, interviewing best-selling author Audrey Cole, who's got a new book out called The One. She's also got The, uh, the Pilot's Daughter, which was I just finished reading it, and it was fabulous. Me too. I read that, uh, read that a couple of weeks ago, and it's, uh, it's great. Yeah, I can't wait to talk to her about that. Yeah, that thing, I couldn't even, it was like, I blew through that one pretty fast. I was like, wow, it's, it was great. So, yep. So look for new episodes every two weeks. And until then, people, be cool to each other. Fair winds and following seas. You've been listening to the Two Authors Chat Show with Nicholas Harvey and Douglas Pratt.